0: hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host Paula Wiseman and today I am lucky enough to be chatting. He's a writer, he's a producer, he's also a former senior commissioning editor for entertainment at Channel 4 between 1984 and 1997. It's Seamus Cassidy. Hey Seamus how are you?
1: Hey I'm very well thanks. Amazing. Um, correct you straight away though. I'm oh, not go a, on. I have never written anything in my life. Oh, you're down as a having
0: a <laughs> writing, So you've done. You've obviously done something in your in your vast career <laughs> that someone's made a note of. He, he wrote these words somewhere. <laughs> so there we go. We've 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 kiboshed a a lie on online.
1: First myth exploded.
0: I know. I know. It's, it's, you know. It's. It's crazy what people write about you online these days. You know, total lie. But, but
1: everybody's everybody's a writer now. Everybody. I know. That's it. Everyone's everyone has written yeah, something. We keep getting this kind of oh, uh, uh, everything is storytelling. Mm. Storytellers. Yeah. yeah, we've always been storytellers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the Irish in you. Yeah,
0: do you know what I mean? you know they obviously thought oh he's Irish. He's written something.
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> Trying kind of to. Anyway. <laughs>
0: Anyway, welcome. (laughs) So I usually like to start talking a little bit about childhood. It's not something Mm. we know too much about a lot of people, you know, their younger lives. So what was young Seamus like? Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I grew up in Derry. And uh, there's not an awful lot to tell. I grew up, I suppose, at the start of what we now nostalgically refer to as The Troubles. Right, yeah. I went to school here. I went to university in Belfast at Queens. Uh And at that point, I fell in with some people from the BBC Mm. making youth programs, which were those things with uh, with people in rainbow sweaters saying. (laughs) And um, I work on a there was a, a dairy something else. There was a wonderful program called Something Else. And it was in the days when TV youth TV and community programs, as they were called,
0: yeah.
1: instead of giving over a crew and some producers to groups of people and letting them make a program about their lives or their, mm. their victims. Um, so I worked in this program called Something Else, which was about being a young person in dairy. And I had a blazing row. A, a guy came over <laughs> to direct it called Mike Bolland, who will right. become who will become germane to our story later. <laughs> I had an absolutely blazing row with him in the middle of the Strand Road, which is a main thoroughfare in Derry, at about one o'clock in the morning, uh, because he thought stiff little fingers were wonderful, and <laughs> I, I thought they were a bit fake. Um And Mike remembered me. And so he recommended me to a friend of his who was, who remains a very good friend, Don Coots. who was making a program in BBC Belfast Mm -hmm. about more young people. And I was co-opted to that. And then he recommended that I go to the, he got me invited to the Edinburgh TV Festival. Oh, wow. Yeah, to speak At a thing about youth programs. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I kind of put the cat among the pigeons because I said I thought youth programs were dreadful. (laughs) I didn't want to be told how miserable my life was and how terrible things were and how, you know, how young offenders were treated in prisons. And I wanted something that was a bit more positive. Hmm. So that resulted in me having. A number of people tried to hire me, including Roger Gale, now a Tory MP. He spoke to me and said, oh, would you like to talk further? Um, (laughs) And uh, we never did. And he he was a youth television producer as well. And um, so then I got taken to London because people were setting up production companies for channels coming on air. Mm. And... uh, the aforementioned Don Coots invited me to London and said, what would you like to make a film about? And I said, clowns. I'd like to make a a film about kids in the circus. And they looked a bit puzzled because I had not said I wanted to make a film about how easy it was to become a young offender. (laughs) And um, they they brought me to London, uh, three weeks running or four weeks running, when I would have loads of meetings about making a film about the circus, mm-hmm. I also end up doing stuff around the office and going out on shoots and just generally being a bit of a factotum. Yeah, yeah. At the end of which they said, We don't think we're going to make the film about the circus. Um, <laughs> we want to hire you as a researcher. Like <laughs> I get hired as a researcher. Mike Bolland is by that stage at Channel 4. Yeah. He remembers me. He wow. Does punch me in the face (laughs) and uh, after a couple of years he invited me to come to channel four for a few months and work with him as an assistant because he had been promoted from being head of youth programs
0: yeah yeah
1: being head of entertainment so i go to channel four and my job as a researcher is taken over by a young whippersnapper called jonathan ross (laughs) <laughs> I don't actually know what happened to oh him. Oh my God. Oh, so there you go. Um, so that little production company was actually quite a good um, you know, conveyor belt of talent. Because there were a few other people who went through there who went on to to great things as well. But like so- channel four in the channel four in the early days, nobody hmm. knew what it was going to become. It was this, oh wow, yeah. it's
0: this new channel, you know, and there's kind of like it was it was kind of it became known for its comedy the comedy aspect of it became very kind of prevalent.
1: But nobody that was, I have to give Mike a lot of credit for that because he commissioned The Tube, which oh, wow. used a lot of comedians. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he commissioned the comic strip Presents, which went out on the first night of Channel 4. Yeah. There, Go Mad and Dorset, which was a parody of Enid Blyton. Yeah, yeah. And had Dawn and Jennifer and Peter Richardson who, who I think is the, the great lost genius of the comics? Yeah, it really is. Um, he he's he's wonderful. Um, and uh, it had who else did it, did it have oh well it had them all in it. I think it had Alexi in it and you know yeah
0: yeah yeah they yeah. were
1: all there in that. Now that was already done by the time I arrived at Channel Four, but then there was a comic strip series, and then because what my commission tended to do quite well. And everything else that Channel Four was doing tended to do quite badly. Mm. Uh, we kind of got more and more stuff to do, and by the yeah. time Mike moved up and I took over the entertainment job, we had quite a kind of growing little empire. So yeah,
0: I think I was only about I think I was about ten or eleven when Channel Four first started out, and it was like this like a light bulb. Do you know what I mean? It was oh my god, there's a there's a channel. This is a channel for us for for younger people, do you know what I mean, with the, with all the stuff that... I think, were,
1: you know, I so. think if you look back at that first few years, there was stuff that was very standout and flagship-like. Yeah, the Jude, definitely. But there was also an enormous amount of stuff that was much older.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: I, when I went to Channel 4, I, I was kind of like a kid walking into the big city for the first time.
0: Mm. Oh, especially from Derry. You know, I surrounded by
1: people like Liz Forgan, who had been... You know, one of the editors on the Guardian and Michael Cousteau who had run the ICA and was a serious bigwig in the arts, and you know, there were all these people who were, you know, in their own fields, very, very prestigious, and they were undoubtedly on the kind of outer alter, not alternative, but the more kind of um, the more exotic wing. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, not you mean? But
1: they were they were important people who had serious, serious achievements under their belts and their careers. And I was this little fella, you know, (laughs) who who turned up and Jeremy Isaacs ran ran it and he had made Ireland a television history and the world at war. And, you know, he was one of the most eminent broadcasters. He still is one of the most eminent broadcasters of the last 50 years. You know, it was quite a privilege to be invited to go and work there.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you you were saying you went to university at Queen's in Belfast. Mm -hmm. What did you do there? What were you, what was the the plan initially?
1: Uh, The initial, well, I did a law degree, never intending to practice law. And when I was interviewed for it, I, there was a very nice woman called Bridget Hadfield. And um, she said, Mister Cassidy, why do you want to do law? And I said, well, I want to find out why people commit crimes. And she looked a bit puzzled, and she said, mm, "I'm not sure we're going to be able to help you there." But we'll- <laughs> <laughs> <That's> um, <wonderful. laughs> yeah, I, I don't think police know why people commit crimes; otherwise, there wouldn't be quite so many. But so that's what I did at Queens, and I edited the university newspaper for a couple of years. But I never had any really great yearning to be in television.
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's been a lot of comedians like Jack Doherty even studied law. A lot of people seem Funny to have gone down the law route and then just gone off on a, t- a totally different tangent.
1: Doesn't you know, say much for law, does it? It's kind of <laughs> it
0: doesn't really when you think about I think, it.
1: I think Bob Mortimer is actually a solicitor. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he went the whole nine yards. John Lloyd, the producer. Yeah, think...
0: yeah. There's obviously something in law that's that leads you into comedy.
1: <laughs> And yeah, and I've actually, you know, without being disingenuous, I've thought about that over the years, and I have no idea what it is. Yeah, uh, no,
0: I'm always fascinated by people's journeys to get to where always, they where they came to. They always go off. They seem to go on a road, and then all of a sudden, there's this weird tangent. They just go for no apparent
1: reason. Just go off and do something totally, totally different. Maybe it teaches you to be analytical. Maybe. It certainly gives you a way of approaching a problem that is different. It's quite destructive. Yeah. Law is, you know, the, the basis of a lot of law is trying to figure out why something is wrong. Mm. <laughs> so you're always looking at the negative rather than the positive. Um, it's a
0: massive subject though, isn't it? You can say, oh, I'm going to go and study law. I mean, I suppose there's like 50 million types of law that you could study.
1: That's true. And there, you know, you can. I, I tended to be drawn towards the criminal side of it.
0: Mm. That tells uh, a lot about you, Seamus.
1: No, no. Uh... <laughs> <The> <laughs> well, way your mind works? <laughs> if you grow up in, if you grow up where I grew up, mm. you have a different perspective on what a yeah. place is to what you have if you grow up in Hampstead.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 100 percent.
1: Or indeed, you know, in Bethnal Green. So I think that maybe had... And also, you know, there were... When I was about 10 or 11 years old, there were troops on the street. Mm. You know, so the the whole idea of what the parameters of a legal framework were in Northern Ireland were completely different. Mm. And in certain areas if you did stuff that was antisocial, it wasn't the police who dealt with you, oh, and, yeah. and you didn't get sent to the big house. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, even Belfast in the 90s. I remember going into Belfast in the 90s, and you had all the, yeah. the PSNI, the armoured cars going around, and police walking the streets with guns and stuff.
1: Around about 93 or 90, 92, it might have been, a girlfriend of mine was over at Christmas, and we were driving back to Aldergrove Airport and she'd been there for about four or five days. And she said, "And we saw an army landgrover. And she said, mm, yeah, yeah, I said, that's weird. I've just realized that I've been here for five days and I haven't seen a single soldier. And it was because it was at that point where the army were starting to withdraw. There was a ceasefire. Mm. And there was, you know, it was kind of part of the the world around me at that mm. time.
0: I suppose and London the, was quite calm when you got <laughs> when time you
1: got there. You're like, I used, okay, into, I used to walk into. I used to what in, I grew up in. I used to walk into department stores and hold my hands in the air, waiting to be frisked. Wow. <laughs> because I was so used to a completely different, you know, way of
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, way of walking around. Yeah, I mean, London was was great, and you know, one of the things I still miss about London is coming out of the tube or walking onto the street and seeing the rainbow of faces. Oh yeah. You know, because I'd come from somewhere where the only black people you saw were soldiers. Mm. Um And uh, now that's actually, it's not entirely resolved, but there are more diverse faces around, certainly around Derry, but not to the extent that there would be in London. You know, that's, that's something that I think we'll have to change. Mm. Um, because then we yeah. might start to realise that we're all kind of the same, you know.
0: Ah, uh, These these things take, take time, don't they? But unfortunately, time passes at very slow rate, doesn't it, when, when it's concerning that kind uh, of
1: thing? Not at my age, it doesn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're a young whippersnapper, Seamus. What are you talking about?
1: Right, so anyway. So,
0: I mean, how do you get from being a researcher in Channel 4 to being the senior, senior commissioner in Edison for... For entertainment.
1: you see when, when when I went in there? It's hmm, a good question. Um, when when I went in there, I had I wasn't a researcher anymore. I mean, researchers in television do a very wide. Yeah, kind of
0: different stuff.
1: Yeah. soldiers of television, mm. and when I went into Channel Four, there w- there was an office which we shared, and there were from the predecessor who had really not done very much. You know, there there was an inheritance, and the inheritance was an awful lot of awful, awful, awful old-fashioned entertainment programs that he'd commissioned for two bob and a bottle of scotch for the green. And there was things like mini pops. You (laughs) know mini pops was a seriously, seriously dodgy program. (laughs) Kids. Yeah, I had the albums. Right, okay, well, imagine doing that today. um you that, couldn't. You couldn't. one of the first things we did was get rid of many pops and there were a few other things. there were quite a lot of these ghastly programs, but yeah, there yeah. were a couple of things in there, like Countdown and Treasure Hunt Department, which were actually pretty good programs, and there were going they were going to be quite good bankers that we could hold on to. But the other thing that there was in the office were piles upon piles of scripts. Wow. And proposals, which nobody had read. So I started to read all the scripts and I kind of kept the ones that were vaguely promising and uh-huh. handed to Mike, and he got rid of most of those. And, you know, we, we just had to winnow through this. We were getting 100 scripts a week at one oh point. My God. And that became. For as long as I was there, that now we managed to narrow down how many we got. Wow. By the end of my time there. But for some years, we were getting a huge volume of scripts, and everybody was sending everything. And you can imagine that 90% of them, 95% of them, 98% of them really weren't great. Well, weren't. And then there was a kind of a and this was sort of became the area that interested me more than anything, I suppose, there was a kind of a percentage of one or two, one and a half percent that weren't quite good enough to make, but mm-hmm. seemed to suggest that the writer had something. And eventually, years later, that became the Riverside C- sitcom festival, which I thought up, and Bill burdett could being A genius of an organizer and a genius of a promoter worked out how to do. So we would often commission people to write a script, knowing in our heart of hearts that they weren't actually going to ever make it Mm. to make some of them feel like writers. Yeah. Because I don't think you're a writer until you've actually put something on. And I said, you know, not, I don't mean that in a snobbish way. No, I know what you mean. I mean that I think you have to have that sensation of somebody in an office saying to you, this isn't good enough or an audience laughing or not laughing or, you know, I loved people who went out and made their own little films. And again, 99% of it was not very, (laughs) but they went out and made their films and I thought, well, that's good because you don't expect somebody else to just do it. And um, that was kind of after about three years, about 1987, when we already had quite a lot of stuff being made then. Um, Mike got promoted and I moved into the job. And we tried to make it as seamless as possible because I think that one of the worst things that can happen in television is not invented here syndrome. And I experienced it at the other end as an independent producer where things had got quite a long way down the line. And then somebody took over the department and threw out 80% of what had been under development. Yeah. And that's really frustrating. And I'm sure good things fall between the rails like that. And because it was Mike and I had been a bit of a double act and we had been very close in our tastes he once said to me, which I suppose is germane now, he said, do you think, we'd we'd had a meeting with, we used to get ITV heads of comedy and entertainment used to come to see us, and some of them were actually okay, and some of them were really, you know, blazers and flannel types (laughs) um, who would, you know, say, well, we've got Penny Keith under option, we can do something. (laughs) We'd say, look, we love Penny Keith, but She's not really channel four. And they didn't quite yeah. get. And um he said to me, Do you know, do you think when you know we're older, we're going to go around thinking that the only funny people in the world are Rick and Aid. <laughs> 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 all these young comedians coming up are dreadful. And it always stayed with me. And I've always tried to avoid thinking nobody can do it like the generation that I've worked with and tried to work with, you know, different generations of people. Because it's actually a fairly astute observation he made that people get to an age and the comedy that made them laugh when they were 30 or 35 or 20 or 25, Mm. only comedy for them. And, you know, I can see that's happening now. You know, I read an article not long ago in the guardian where young comedians were saying they thought that what bill hicks was doing was unacceptable Mm. and i thought "Hmm, it's interesting because when i was commissioning bill hicks people who thought he was unacceptable were the exact opposite of what you want to be and so that struck me as kind of struck me as kind of worth noting
0: Mm, Uh, yeah but then you've got these you know these guys that are timeless like Rick and Aid, and obviously like, even like the Morecambe common Wises and stuff, they still kind of kept their timelessness. I mean, it's... Hang
1: Dawson. Yes, Dawson.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he's still... You put him on TV now and everyone would... He's a whole, the whole family would enjoy.
1: I think that there's a difference in how people see comedy now. Oh, definitely. I think that the days when all you asked of a comedian was that you laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And people are now beginning to see it as a way of, almost as a way of setting down some kind of a cultural marker, Hmm. which is why I think the likes of Dave Chappelle or John Oliver or Ricky Gervais or, you know, on all sides, it's, it's not just a purely... What's the word? Conservative, populist, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's not just that. It's it's what used to be transgressive com- what used to be thought of, of as the place that transgressive comedy has come mm. from has become very conformist. And the place that com- that transgressive comedy is coming from more often than not is the Chappelles and the Gervaises, yeah, yeah, who are talking about trans people or who are Mm -hmm. talking about inverse racism or talking, you know, in a way that I think that my generation probably would have when we were practitioners or enabling practitioners, we'd have found that challenging. Would I have put Dave Chappelle on? I'd have put him, I saw him in Montreal when he was about 17. Wow. And I'd have put him on then. I'm not sure what I would do now. I am mm. a very good comedian. I think his... I haven't seen his last special, but I, I don't see anything wrong with challenging people's assumptions. And I think he does it very well. And he does it funnier than a lot of other people. He's funny. And I don't have to agree with him to appreciate him as a comedian. I don't have to agree with him yeah. to be able to watch his comedy in the sense that I couldn't have watched Roy Chubby Brown, which I once had to do. <laughs> <laughs> you had to. I had to watch an internet special for some discussion I was in. It wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> let's just say. It's
0: horses for courses, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, comedians for different pockets. Yeah, of screen, I don't I know.
1: I find what Roy, Roy Chubby Brown was doing was, offensive at a level that I just couldn't I, I I could I can see why people find Chappelle offensive, but I don't mm. find it offensive. I think yeah. it's making I mean, it a bit punch. like the
0: old the Bernard Manning's and the Jim Davidson's, you know yeah.
1: yeah. Of the world. Except that they came from they're punching down. Uh, that's what I find difficult about that generation of comedians. And they were enforcing so I think there's a difference between what Chappelle does, mm. where he's asking people to approach something from a from a different perspective to their own, and what Manning did, which is taking people who are already targeted and already subject to people having an ignorant non-contact based relationship. And punching down on them because at the time that Manning was there, the Indians in Pakistan, as you saw, were waiters in restaurants, or they were yeah. bus drivers, or they were postmen, and they weren't people who were, they weren't people who you were like, they weren't going to be your lawyer, they weren't yeah, going but
0: to, running running businesses and things. They weren't
1: going to be running. They, some of them were running businesses actually, yeah, yeah. Mm. perhaps more than than all those other areas, but I think you were not going to see them as social equals and it became easier to punch down. This is probably, you know, boring old, (laughs) boring old lefty stuff. But, you know, (laughs) I I, I think that's something which is a difference from what Gervais, for that matter, or Chappelle try to do. And that, that makes it kind of all right for me. Uh, not kind of, but makes it all right for me. Mm, that, mm. I don't see a problem. Would it have fitted into the Channel Four ethos? I don't know. It'd be That's the thing
0: is, uh, things are generally of their time. Do you know? Yeah. What I mean? you can kind of put things into, you know, that that was what the what the mindset of people were like in the the late nineties. You know, obviously, yeah. the, the mindset of the public in the late nineties is totally, you know, different to if you went and spoke to people on the street now about their views.
1: Hello, Ted. I hear you're a racist now. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> exactly. I mean... Actually, ordinary people don't think about these things in terms of Dave Chappelle either. Mm-hmm. Um, they they think about them and they, they just like the fact that there are a couple of Markman-wise repeats on it. Because, <laughs> and they love Mrs. Brown's boys and... <laughs> You know, I, I I think that's fine. I, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that. It is what it is. But anyway, we we seem to have. It's all good. This, no, I'm I'm loving it's this. Involved in this strange things. area. We're, here, we're We're seeing behind. We're seeing behind
0: the curtain. But like, so you know, senior commissioning editor for entertainment. So, what would a typical day for you be like? Were you literally? Would you literally be ploughing through scripts all day? I mean, how did it? Can you tell us a little um, bit about, about um, your job, about your job as the senior a, did it, a what, of it. What did it involve?
1: I had readers, um, I only ever used to have one at a time, right? And the vast majority of the time, it was a guy called Paul Mayhew Archer, who should be a comedy legend because Paul Mayhew Archer was a brilliant radio producer, he did a bit of TV producing, he co wrote by which I understand that he actually wrote most of the Vicar of Dibley. He's written on a lot of other things. He is perhaps the most charming man on television. <laughs> I haven't spoken to him for some years, and I understand he hasn't been well. Yeah. But he was a gentleman, and he was brilliant because he was incredibly, he was very intelligent, very very punctil- punctilious is the wrong word. Very uh, very nitpicking. But he nitpicked at a very good level, constantly asking what the story is, how does that move the character on. I learned an enormous amount from, from Paul. Um, And he would have been, he may have been the person who told me I should see John and Murray and all that lot. He was voracious and he would read and read and read. And then he would pass me stuff. To read that he he filtered it and what he would pass me was always at least worth a read. Mm. So I usually have one day a week at home yeah. when I would do nothing but read scripts, and then the rest of the time, a lot of it, in the early days, a lot of it was spent collecting rejection letters. Oh, God. Um, yeah, because you get a hundred scripts a week, you got to, oh,
0: yeah.
1: and I fought very hard against having a standard rejection. But you end up saying the same things, you know. Yeah. But I remember getting seeing rejection letters that Humphrey Barclay had written, who was a very big producer. Humphrey, another one of the great gentlemen of comedy, and they were brilliant. They were every script would have. It didn't matter where it came from. He would write a rejection saying, "I really like this, and I really like that, and the reason this isn't for me is." Dun, dun, dun. And I thought that was wonderful now. My rejection letters were nowhere near as good as his or as comprehensive. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, feedback is what you want, isn't it? You said something you're like, but oh, why did they why was it no good? I
1: that. And and I really respected that. Mm. And I tried to carry some of that into what we did. So there'd be a certain amount of writing rejection letters. There'd be an awful lot of meetings. There'd be a meeting on the hour. With somebody who had an idea, and sometimes yeah. people that you had to see because they had an idea and they had had other ideas that had worked, right? Or they had some relationship with an ITV company or with somebody more senior than you, mm. or mm. you know, so you'd see all these people, and an awful lot of it would be from 10 to 11 most mornings when I said a meeting, yeah, I'd be wandering around Channel 4. <laughs> walking into people's offices and talking to them in the finance department, department because I found that when when you work in a broadcaster like that, especially at that time, you wouldn't get away with it now. There was all money floating around. There were yeah. yeah. There were sort of piles of money lying I'm I'm gonna have to (laughs) And the, we we always had things. We always had negotiations that were going on. <laughs> and, you know, you'd be trying to commission something.
0: Yeah.
1: And there would be routine meetings with finance people and routine telling you about your budget. Yeah. And routine meetings, talking about your various contracts that were being negotiated. So I would find that I would short circuit a lot of things just by going into people's office and having a chat. Hmm. Um, and finding out what they needed from me and so a certain amount of it was that um a certain amount of it was the routine meeting often with with your boss, you had a in some cases once a week with other bosses it would be mm. as they moved because when Mike left, we had a kind of a chain of people who were above me, who were the person I reported to right, right one of whom was Don Airy, one of whom was Andrea Wanfer. And uh, Andrea was very informal and liked to do things on the fly. You know, you'd Mm -hmm. be talking to your assistant and Andrea would come up and say, oh, I need you to do this. And you say, okay, (laughs) done," And that would all happen like that. Whereas Dawn sat down with a list and she had a list and you had a list. And at the end of the day, you had to go and start doing the things she'd put in your list. And she went, Did all the things you had put on her list right and the next day she'd say oh I did this 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 and this what have you done and you'd have to say (laughs) oh "Oh, she was brilliant she was the one I adored working with because she had structure coming out yeah that's what you want and you knew where you were and there was no mucking about it happened in the meeting and then you know and then it got done or it didn't and if it didn't get done, she said, "Why?" Oh, God. that was that was such a joy to work with because it can become it can, can become very vague you know <laughs> it it can be become very much about putting things in a long finger and yeah not getting back to you and people don't believe this about commissioning editors because everybody thinks that every commissioning editor they've ever dealt with is too slow in coming back and giving them a response mm. uh, and even more disappointingly, 99 times out of hundred, that response is no, but actually, you know, within structures, you're also often, you know, waiting for somebody to make a decision on something or waiting to try to winkle loose enough money to do something or, you know, so, uh, you know, it, it, it works all the way up the chain. Um, in that sense,
0: yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the, one of the biggest things that in, in, in recent, well, not in recent times, but the biggest thing you commissioned was this, this little-known show called Father Ted. Think mm. some, some people might have heard of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, what,
0: what what was that? What was that process like? Um, how did was it? A, did
1: you receive a, a script? How did uh, we how received did you a page it? with a joke on it, right? Uh, uh, from Jimmy Mulville. Because, the well, the boys had written a show called Paris.
0: Yes, Alexi Sale.
1: alexis Sale. And I had commissioned Paris and I thought it was going to be the greatest show ever. <laughs> and I loved going to read-throughs and I loved talking to the boys and it was great. And it was going to be great. And I went to all the recordings Another thing you do when you're in those days when I was commission editor, I went to pretty much as many recordings as I could,
0: yeah,
1: um which meant that evenings were either going to a recording or going out to see comedians died in thezar very badly, and I think there was a general feeling that the lads were dead, in the water. <laughs> 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 oh, no horror people like, who you loved know, it loved it. it. Do you know what I mean? I spoke
0: to Arthur about this, and he was like, "Oh my God, I can't understand why why it didn't." No, I don't.
1: Know, I, didn't do better. I don't, you
0: know?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I. It might have been because it was about an extremely rarefied thing. Mm. Anyway, uh, Jimmy Mulville sent a piece of paper, well, page, with a joke, which eventually found it, its way into the show with Tad erecting a crucifix outside the parochial house. Yeah falling and hitting him on the head. And, um, ha-ha, huge, big, big joke. Um, It was all right. Um, And we kind of, Paul and I laughed, and we realised it was from the same boys who had given us Paris. So we commissioned scripts, and the scripts were absolutely brilliant. Mm. I was reading the scripts in the tube on the way to work, and I think people were thinking something was wrong with me. So, <laughs> I never laugh out loud, Paul. I'm not a good, I'm not a good Who's audience. this
0: deranged guy on the chair?
1: <laughs> I was la- sitting there with tears rolling down my cheeks. And a lot of it connected with me because it, it was, there is a slightly kind of Flann O'Brien whimsy. Mm. But there also was this, I had, I'd only ever seen one script before that had managed to get so many different stylistic things and so many different comedic things, visual jokes, stupid puns, warped logic jokes, film references. (laughs) It was just, you know, it was like somebody had gone and ransacked the library of Pop culture, yeah, you know, and everything from Markham and Wise, you know, type sight gags to Quentin Tarantino films.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, there's there's a scene in the the episode where they have all the rabbits. Tom, <laughs> um, the psychotic killer, trying to choose what to hit the rabbits with, and it's just this little reference to the scene in Pulp Fiction where Bruce Willis eventually chooses a samurai sword. (laughs) And it was just absolutely bristling with these jokes. And um, so I commissioned more scripts and eventually I said that I wanted to make it. And the one thing about it, the one thing that stuck out about it was are people going to get this in England? Mm. This very, very Irish. Oh yeah. And Paul had been—I didn't need much persuading, but Paul Mayhew Archer had been needling me and saying, "We mo- we've got to do this. We've got," and he wasn't a persistent guy. He was mm. nice, but he was impassioned by these scripts as well. And I said, "Paul, are people going to get this?" And he said, "Trust me, they'll get this." And that was kind of the that was the final green light it needed for me because yeah. I trusted his judgment. And we did the first series and it didn't do great. But in those days, first series, which didn't do great, were all right.
0: Yeah, but a slow burner, wouldn't it? You know, you want to be, it you start profit. talking about it.
1: Yeah, and Fools and Horses hadn't caught fire until Series 3. And there were a lot of... The BBC had this tradition of doing making something popular by just Mm. keeping doing it because they believed in it. And I really believed in Ted. And to Michael Grade's credit, he tells the story in his own autobiography, there was a budget meeting, an annual budget meeting for what I was going to do in the following year. And I said, I want to do 10 episodes of TED.
0: Yeah.
1: Because I was pretty convinced that this six episode business was a bad thing. The reason people were not watching the shows I was commissioning in bunches of six is because they just simply hadn't seen enough of them. And uh, such was my genius that if they saw some more of these things that were good, and he said, 10. And he said, is it going to be funny this time? Oh, God. And I said something which I don't think was, he doesn't report what I said, but I said yes, but I said it in quite a aggressive way. <laughs> and, uh, he said, okay. And to be fair to him, you know, and he's dead right because it's something that is wrong with television now is that everything has to go to a director of programs and everything has to go to these chess grandmasters who lay their benediction on its brow before it gets paid. And Michael was very good at saying, I trust my people and if they say something is worth doing, then it's worth doing and we should try it. And he trusted me and thank God he did because it was, was a big success. And um, and a big success in Channel 4 terms, by the way, was not 22 million people on Christmas Day. It was, you know, mm-hmm. two and a half million, three million. It was quite small. There wasn't the expectation on us to deliver the big figures. Um, so that was Ted. And um, there were a few other things around at the time, which were quite, this would have been 93 or 94. Toothbrush was just starting then as well. Um and I'd be leaving a rehearsal for Toothbrush to go to a meeting about Ted. The producer used to say, how are your vicars getting along? <laughs> and they're not the vicars, they're fucking priests. <laughs> yeah.
0: Get it right.
1: They're quite different from vicars. Oh, definitely. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of stuff going on then. And Ted kind of stuck its head above everybody else because it was so unique and individual so I, I to this day I don't know why priests for the general audience but
0: I know it's a very weird kind of you know it shouldn't work but it it really does I mean I came to a couple of the filmings mm-hmm. um I came to see the it was the over seven over 75s football football match oh, yeah. um and the very final episode Mm. Uh, just you know just before Dermot passed away yeah it was just so crazy like I literally went home the next day and I was like oh my god that was so amazing and my dad was in the car he said oh my god did you hear about Dermot and I was like well, yeah, I, I, yeah I saw him yesterday and he's like oh, it, I didn't know
1: it
0: a lot. just that news was just unbelievable you know when you'd seen the, the ending that they'd done that they'd filmed you know in the studio that, that evening about you know Ted standing on a window ledge Getting ready to getting ready to jump off, you know, and how it all turned out. It was just you know. I
1: left at that point, and I came to that recording. Um, I saw Dermot afterwards, and Dermot and I were reasonably friendly. And mm. we're going to dinner with I can't remember it was that night or the next night with Nick McCarthy, the <laughs> Irish <Iron> manager.
0: <laughs> so that would be the dinner to be a fly on the wall at.
1: Well, uh, yeah, but also, you, you know, it was he and he invited me to come along, and I I was either doing something or I was very tired. I can't remember why I didn't go, and I said no, I, do, I didn't, just didn't fancy having one. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, I said no, and then on the Sunday morning, Katie Taylor, who was had been my assistant at Channel Four, rang me to say, "Before you see this in the papers, mm. uh, and." Um, I couldn't watch that episode for about five years. Yeah. Um, You know, Tommy was in it, and he was very funny. And there was that section where they did Shaft, wasn't it? Oh, my God. They got
0: Dermot to do that about five times. (laughs) The Shaft shaft thing. You know,
1: they were, mm, I, I, I think, I remember Dermot always felt to me as if he was a little bit... In the nicest possible way, a little bit pissed off that it was seen in the industry as Graham and Arthur's Father Ted and not Dermot's Father Ted. And on the Monday morning I went up to the news agents on my corner in London, and every tabloid had Father Ted. And it's oh you fool. <laughs> you always Ted. Um, It
0: was just unbelievable. So revered, so revered here for Scrap Saturday, and
1: sad that he never quite knew how much of it people—not that he deserved the credit because he did, but he he thought he did—but that people were aware of who he was Mm. and aware of how important he was because it is a very funny performance. But it is also, you know, an extraordinary piece of comedy writing. Yeah. And performers around him were extraordinary. Pauline is a comedy genius. Mm. You know, and Ardle, who himself is a really brilliant stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Somehow managed to kind of bring the best of what he is as a stand-up, but Surrender himself to what that show needed, and not be the star, which is a tremendous piece of generosity of spirit.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. If you look at Ardle's early stand up, do you know what I mean? Like you could see Dougal, where do- Dougal kind of came, <laughs> kind of came from. These bit the bits of Dougal that were Ardle, you know.
1: I think he was in a comedy trio called Mister Trellis.
0: Yes. Yeah, uh, that- Kevin Gildee. Yeah. Barry
1: uh, Murphy. Barry Murphy and uh, I remember him the act used to start my name is Ardell O'Haddon and these are some of the things I know. <laughs> so anyway.
0: Yeah I mean what an ensemble though do you know what I mean to get together. They yeah. were, it was like a perfect storm wasn't it you know with Frank. Well, yeah Frank and
1: but well they, in the they also had but they also had Jeffrey Perkins producing. Mm, oh my God yeah.
0: what a legend of a man.
1: He was an extraordinarily good producer and uh you know, for somebody who was himself such a good writer, uh, tremendously good at allowing people the space, and the declan Lowney directing, although he yeah wasn't yeah, series, who now directs Ted Lasso, uh, <laughs> so you know they, that that one
0: Ted of, to another
1: <laughs> kind of a, a bit of a all round super group in those early days. So anyway, that was Ted.
0: It's crazy though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You put on Channel Four in, of an evening now, and Ted's still there. If you can watch, re-watch, and re-watch and re-watch the episodes, yeah. and they never, they never get old. No, but thank you, thank you from all the fans for for commissioning Ted.
1: You know, it was an open goal, really. You know, but that kind of again, that it was such a template for what happened next in comedy, and for that comedy of extreme, extremely uncomfortable embarrassment, and you know, it was it was a bit of a pace setter there. And I don't know if that's still there as a mm. as something that the next generation buys into in the same way. Maybe yeah, they yeah, yeah.
0: Sure. No, it's interesting seeing it from a from the other other side of the you know the other the other side of things. But from a, from a fan's perspective, as I said, I can only kind of talk about these yeah. these, these my own feelings about these uh, these shows. But obviously, you're seeing that you see things from the, the, <laughs> the opposite side of the fence. Kind of thing you also commissioned uh two series of uh from Paul Merton as well
1: yeah yeah Wait, what, what oh. was that
0: like <laughs> <Work>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well he was brilliant i mean I, I really paul was one of the first people when i went to london i went to see uh there was a place in archway called the earth exchange uh huh and they did uh cabaret nights and i went one night to see this cabaret night and Julian Clary was on with his dog and it was so crowded I was sitting under a table and finally the Wonder Dog kept yep. wandering up to me god bless her and uh, Paul was on and Paul had a routine which he did which he actually did in the show in the series a very famous early routine about a policeman on acid <laughs> brilliant But he had done the routine so many times that what he did that night was write the entire routine out on strips of paper, number them, hand them out to the audience and draw numbers out of a hat. Oh, wow. And people simply read out the number, (laughs) what they had in front of them for that number. So the entire routine was subjected to a sort of um, Burroughs-esque up treatment, <laughs> it was really weird, and but he was clearly very funny. And then he turned up as the warm up man at a very bad sketch that we did uh, really, really, really bad. I won't say what it was, I think it's in his book. Um, and um, he was the warm up man, and after one particularly disastrous night, and there was one of the producers on it was, we, we had a bit of a row about how bad it was. And I said something on the lines of, you're effing warm up man's effing funnier than you're <laughs> You <put> him on. <laughs> Lo and behold, they put him on. <laughs> <laughs> this is the power. One of the few things I ever said to a producer, which he took any notice of, and they put Paul on, and he was actually very good. <laughs> and uh then he was in Whose Line, part of the Comedy Store Players, and Whose Line was really kind of uh well, it was the Comedy Store Players, wasn't it, without everybody? And um Hattrick uh proposed a show, which at the time was so expensive that a Merton became code within the finance department of channel four uh for uh, a quarter of a million pounds <laughs> that's what it cost per episode american so that that series is going to cost you six Mertons. so and the problem with it was it was beautifully done uh it was directed by the late lady aldroyd who was a really superior director
0: a legend yeah
1: the thing was what paul's live stand-up is and what his performance on Have I Got News is that he brilliantly evokes pictures and those pictures are in your head and if those pictures are not in your head and are in front of you they're not as funny as when they're in your head. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Or was a
1: dolphin? <laughs> There was a dolphin, I can't remember the routine, but the routine involved a dolphin and an anorak. And they got a costume made, which was an absolutely beautiful dolphin head. Right. And the yellow anorak walking around as this dolphin going to <laughs> agents or something. And it wasn't funny because once you saw the dolphin. It was visual. You yeah. doing the work yourself. And it's like a lot of things. It's like reading a book. Mm. You know, a lot of the time, books don't work on on film because they work better in your head. I hated. Yeah. Them. I really, really didn't didn't. You know, I just looked at it and thought that you no, know, that's not how I thought it would look. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got a vision in your mind when you're reading. you got certain to do. books that that are you know are very and it works in reverse as well. I mean, I remember watching Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, is, yes. wonderful, and um, then when I started to read the book and, Susanna Clark's a wonderful writer, she's a brilliant writer, uh, yeah. and the pictures I was seeing, I couldn't get the pictures out of my head of so any and um, being those characters. Mm. And it didn't spoil the book for me because I eventually was able to flush that down the loo and get let her words do their work. But with Paul Merton, that's my theory. What was brilliant as words coming out of Paul Merton in that voice, it stopped being brilliant when somebody else did the work for you. And I think that's one of the reasons stand-up comedy, for all the fact that it changes and it moves through various Mm. situations, it'll always have something to it because it's that bardic thing of... You know, when people talk about, you know, we're all storytellers, everything's storytelling. We're, you know, storytellers around the fire. But those stories work because they're great stories. They work because the bard is a great performer. Yeah, yeah. And they work because they provide pictures in your head. Mm. And those pictures in your head, I think, and that's why comedy as, sure, you know, the... Buster Keaton's very funny as a visual joke. But, you know, for me, the joke works in in the audience's head. Mm. And, um, you know, I always think when you watch a sitcom, the most important laugh is the one where the audience gets the plot. Yeah, yeah. They realise that if he does that, she'll know about that. And he'll, co- you know, if you watch an episode of Frasier, it's so obvious. It's so beautifully done. But you know, it, it's always there. There's always a moment when you think, oh no. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. all about that shared experience as well, isn't it? You know, having that yeah. shared experience with people.
1: Yeah. I, I've I've always there is always that thing that people go, oh, people are just like that, and oh, I know somebody just like that. And that's very important too. But I've never felt personally that it's quite as important is the picture they put into your head. Mm. Is, and I think that's maybe if you're looking for a way to sum up what the best comedians do, you, is that they put the picture in your head that makes mm. you... Look, Billy Connolly, Eddie Izzard, Um, You know, at their best as performers, not that Connolly was ever in anything less than his best, but there is that thing that you are getting the picture in your head. If somebody had filmed The Last Supper, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as funny as it is when, that, <laughs> you know, that, that really is a, a tour de force.
0: So a few a few past guests have described you as a bit of a legend, including the guys from Absolutely, who mm. I spoke to a little while back. And they told me this brilliant story, which obviously meant a bit more to them than it <laughs> did to you, uh, about them trying, they were. it was very, very early on, in their Channel 4 career. And I think there was yourself, Mike Boland, and some sandwiches. C- can we have your side of the story?
1: <laughs> I don't really know. I don't know anything. <laughs> sandwiches vaguely rings. They were above.
0: in Channel 4, and there was <laughs> there was a
1: meeting, and you were going out for lunch,
0: and uh, you were supposed to be going out for lunch with Mike. And, so- and someone said, oh, is there sandwiches? And there were sandwiches. and you You decided to stay in for lunch that particular day, and you saw these guys.
1: And, then, and then, they, then they turned up. See, so there were barbed wire fences and Alsatian dogs and oh, things. right, like okay. Turning up. No, I honestly can't help. I really wish I could <laughs> improvise a version of this story for you. I don't remember that. I remember having a big round, when we decided to do Absolutely, I remember having a big round table meeting at which their agent, who was a very aggressive little man (laughs) who I later worked with on other things and got on great with, Right. he said, and I am going to be the executive producer. (laughs) I said, no, you're not going to be the executive producer. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't want to talk to you about this because I don't want to talk to somebody who is so close to the performers. Yeah. You are representing their interests. And as the executive producer, you're the conduit between me and them mm. uh, and you have to be able to look in both directions and uh, that caused a bit of a stir but they kind of they kind of saw that I wasn't going to change my mind and they went yeah. along with it um, no I, I remember getting along very well with John and Murray and thinking they were great and I remember, I remember going to see John Sparks doing Frank Hovis (laughs) in Edinburgh, and as the finale of the act,
0: oh man, he's incredible!
1: He's just putting on the ritz, (laughs) marching down the stage with two pint mugs of lager in each hand, swinging his arms so the lager went everywhere. And you know that thing when you laugh so hard and it doesn't happen very often. And even if you work in comedy, it probably happens even less. But you you just lose control of all your functions and you're just absolutely delirious with laugh. (laughs) Now, whether that was before or after I'd commissioned, absolutely, I don't know. I know that Alan Nixon had done quite a good pitch About doing a sketch show where the sketches ran into each other uh, and where they tried to recapture that Python esque vibe of the whole thing being one seamless, one seamless kind of a stream of comedy. But do you know? I can remember the first recording, but I can't remember. <laughs> I name. mean, they
0: were doing stuff that nobody else was doing at the time. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, the Fast Show and all those guys hadn't even, you know, they weren't even a little twinkle then. But you know, Yeah, they were good
1: characters. Mm. Um, and the first series, I don't seem to remember having that many characters, but as they came up with characters, uh, Marwana's little girl mm. was slightly eerie and unsettling, <laughs> but it was brilliant. Um, and uh, that was very good. And obviously Sparks is one of the great unsung character comics. I always used to think, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to Harry, the Derbert, for the grace of God, one of them, both of them are great character comics. As is Paul Whitehouse, Um, but you know, if there had been a different turn of the road, a different roll of the dice, John might have been in that area. Wow! I think he was. I mean, Denzel.
0: Yeah, he's it's incredible. You know, he's you know the puns, his timing, everything. It's just. I've never, I've never seen anybody work like his work ethic as well is incredible.
1: Yeah, and he's the one that I don't really know what he's doing now.
0: He's doing Peppa Pig.
1: <laughs> he, he
0: narrates. He narrates Peppa Pig. Um, he's done Fireman Sam, and I think he bought he bought Shadwell back for a little bit, a little bit, a couple of years ago uh, for a radio series. But yeah, I think Peppa Pig is his... he's <laughs> he's the narrator of Peppa Pig from the the very beginning and it's uh yeah
1: <laughs> he's got a lovely voice you know He's got a oh he has voice, he has you know? so that's so i'm sorry i'm disappointed that's me. all right
0: that's okay that I, remember, that you know, as I said we, we talked about it and as i said so many people have like arthur matthews obviously and they talked about this sandwich story about you and mike boland and these these sandwiches that um enticed you in uh, to stay to stay in for lunch and uh and see what they were see what they were doing Right. So um, let's move on a little bit in time. Happy Endings. Oh, yeah. Uh, The production company you started with Dara, Dara Breen. So how did did that come about? Were you friends with Dara for a a, uh, long time before?
1: No. um, I, when I left Channel 4, I went to Planet 24. Mm. Didn't enjoy myself very much. And after a couple of years, I'd left. And I was in my flat intending to take six months off and do nothing and i called stephen stewart who had directed don't forget your toothbrush among mm-hmm. other things rang me up and said how bored are you um, <laughs> and i'm very bored it's a loud question <laughs> i went to belfast to meet him and he said i'm doing this game show for rte and we've got this really good presenter called dara o'brien and the year before i had been i'd gone to edinburgh and got a chest infection which laid me in low in a hotel room so i missed the entire six days or whatever i was supposed to be there and one of the people that my one of my associates had said i should see was dara o'brien mm. but i couldn't because i had a chest infection yeah, so, yeah. I said, oh, I've been meaning to see him. And then I went to see him in Dublin and I realized that I had seen him in a heat, or I think it was So You Think You're Funny, in Derry. And, and he was brilliant. He was absolutely hilarious. And uh, so we did this terrible entertainment show uh, called It's a Family Affair, which was kind of trying to be don't forget your toothbrush on a mm. gnarly budget. Uh, And it wasn't great. It had its moments, but I liked working with Dara. And when I left, we when we finally got bumped after two series, I had decided to stay in Dublin for a while because I liked the people I was working with. We'd got this kind of young team who were all from the world of independent production, not RTE. And there were a lot of people who'd never worked in TV before. Yeah. And they were fresh out of college. And I just loved the energy of working with them. Mm. And I thought that maybe there was something I could contribute. And I just liked the fact that I was doing stuff. i I'd, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go to be a commissioning editor, you give up being a producer. So I'd never really been a producer. And I went to Planet 24 and I was never really a producer there either. And I actually just wanted to be. A producer so I had done that as a producer then I quite liked being a producer quite like working with these people mm. so we set up a production company and Dara had been on the panel in Australia and he said oh there's this is a great show so we started to do that we pitched that to RTE who turned it down three or four times <laughs> then they fired the guy who'd been the commissioning editor and within 24 hours it was there (laughs) somebody had rung me and said you know that show he kept turning down we said yes so they did that and dara did three or four series and then his London commitments were becoming too big so he went and it was all down to me then and it was in many ways i wouldn't say it was It was never a better show than when Dara was doing it. Yeah, definitely. Um, But it allowed the likes of Colin Murphy and Neil Delamere and and Andrew Maxwell to come out of the shadow and they did some brilliant, brilliant work on it. And we did nine series of it. Um,
0: Yeah, no, it was massive. I remember I went to, again, I went to a few of the recordings. I'm pretty sure Jack L was on the panel one week. I don't know whether he was a guest, maybe. No, he
1: was on the panel. I'm not sure if he did a number. Mm. We had him on. uh, I know we had him on. Yes, he did. He did his version of um, Niles Barkley. Oh, crazy. Crazy. Yes, yes, yes. He did. There were only ever two musical numbers. Him, And on the very, very first one, which was a standalone Christmas special... Monday did July.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, apart from that, we never had a musical guest. So
0: there you go. Yeah, but it was a great—you know—you would obviously you wouldn't see a musical guest on. Have I got news for you? Would you?
1: Do so, I mean? So it's it could kind have of Oh, sense. and you know, I mean, if it hadn't been for the fact that the show, the show, well, a we had to do it in places that were quite small. Yeah, uh,
0: the, the helix. Um, I think
1: the helix was actually probably the biggest. Oh, no, Vicker Street we did it in for a series. Mm. And stopped. The helix was quite. It was quite nice. It was quite good, and it was big, but we had a row over money with them because oh they wanted God. Me. Um, and but there were never, we never did it anywhere where the stage was big enough to have a musical area outside, and also the show took over two hours to record. Yeah, It was cut down to forty-five minutes, and that was a really really hard edit the next day because. They were very good, you know I mean, they really, and when they worked a piece of material, they could go for fifteen minutes,
0: yeah, yeah, it makes it harder for you to
1: get down, stuff. so that was I used to get really annoyed when people on boards I would say, well, it's very badly, yeah <laughs> oh, really." You, Next Tuesday morning, I'll stay in bed, and you can come in and show Yeah, you us come and do it. <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> um, because it had to be cut very, very fast. Oh and you, my god! You couldn't go back. You know, you couldn't ponder over it. You just had to go right. This is what we would we would literally start at nine o'clock in the morning when it was all digitized in, and we would start playing it, and I'd go stop. Wow.
0: Stop, stop.
1: There was no paper edit and none of that nonsense. We just went, went, went. The only thing we did was figure out if something was a callback that was going to run through the show, Mm. we would sometimes move that around. Or if they did something, I always left them to their own devices before the show. And they would often do 10 minutes of stuff. Or I would say to them, I'm not going to use the first ten minutes, so just do that stuff. Mm, mm. And of course, that would always be the funniest stuff, and that would end <laughs> part two or half. Yeah,
0: but you've always you always seem to have surrounded yourself by good people. I, I, well, I'm not I'm not much good at anything. I'm sure it's not intentional. It's just the way things have happened.
1: Well, I've been very lucky. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, I, I think that your job as if you're a commissioning editor, your job is to get the best people and give them the best atmosphere to do their best work
0: yeah yeah
1: and they don't always agree that the atmosphere you're giving them is the best atmosphere to do their best work and sometimes they are right sometimes you leave them alone too much sometimes (laughs) sometimes you interfere too much yeah yeah by and large i try pretty hard to make that the i i'm not one of those producers who wants to micromanage Mm. people's material if a comedian it's something that's going to get a laugh I'll let them have it. Somebody once said to me he had worked with Neil Delamere. the trouble with Neil is he always thinks he's the best joke writer in, on the show and I said well that's because he's usually the best <laughs> you know I, mean? I went to see somebody once he used to do he used to work out his material the night before a recording mm. do a kind of unannounced turn up at the international bar or somewhere. Yeah yeah and try out his material. And um, I went to see somebody else and met Needle. And he said, oh, I'm on the second half. And I thought, well, I hope who I'm coming to see is on the first half because I will not be there. <laughs> I, he, I saw who I had to see and went home. And at 10 to 12, Neil rang me and said, where did you go? I said, I went home. He said, but I wanted to know what you thought. And I said, well, that's exactly the thing. <laughs> <laughs> you've been doing this for two years.
0: Yeah. If you don't know now,
1: you've never had to be told what I thought. Yeah. If I told you what I thought. It would interfere with what you thought. And you would come out tomorrow night and you'd be thinking, oh, he likes this, but I have to get yeah. this. Yeah. Just that but I won't do it. And you might, you know. So I went home deliberately. <laughs> And, you know, the next day I might cut out stuff he thought was very funny from the edit. But, you know, that was, I, I kind of think you have to, if you're a producer or a commissioning editor, you have to judge where the boundaries are. Mm. And, you know, I never, to, I don't think I ever told absolutely I don't think I ever went to a rehearsal for absolutely. <laughs> I'd get the scripts, obviously, and say I didn't like that. <laughs> that was great. And that's very funny, and I'm looking forward to that. But nobody ever, as far as I can remember, said, you know, I, I had an opinion about things, but I never regarded it as holy writ. Um,
0: <laughs> no, it's funny hearing your side of things, then like, from, from hearing their side of things. It's, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, they think that it was. <laughs> take,
0: take that reverence, Seamus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are, you, what are you up to these days? Are you a man of leisure?
1: I'm kind of a man of leisure. Yeah, I came home a couple. Of, I came home a few years ago because I had a quiet time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We'd just done the rubber bandits and I was exhausted, and I wasn't that happy with what I was doing. I wasn't with yeah. doing the Bishop show that I thought was, anyway. Um, and uh, we did the bandits, which I thought were good shows, but yeah. they were very, very hard work in terms. Oh God, of God, I can imagine. I was no, they're brilliant. Uh, but they were working with another producer who I was working with. So a lot of what I was doing was not in any way it was very administrative and very mm. oriented and I hadn't enjoyed it and I wanted to take a few months off and my mum is quite old and I came home because I kind of thought well you know you might get the time again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and no.
1: Suddenly the world stopped and everybody got the flu. <laughs> oh man, I know. Um And sort of halfway through that it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to go back to Dublin because she requires Mm. care and as time went on I realised I didn't miss running a company and there weren't any particular things I wanted to do Yeah. and um, so now um, I look after my mum I look after Mm -hmm. the kids Mm -hmm. and I do calligraphy Um, and that's yeah, you know, that's kind of most of it, really. Um, yeah, but
0: in fair, fairness, Seamus, do you know what I mean? You've had a career <laughs> that a lot of people would be envious of. If the stories and everything that you must have from your days at Channel
1: Four. Yeah, but you know, they're, they're ultimately when you see. I don't, know, I don't want to be too serious about this, but when you see the world, it's kind. Yeah, of Yeah, I
0: know, I know, I know. But no, but yeah. life's too short. Do you know what I mean? It's like you have got to, you do what you want to do, do what you got to do. Do you know what I mean? Life yeah. to be to be worrying about stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, whether or not I would ever have another of a, a comeback in me, I <laughs> you know, I, I do miss working. I miss working with teams, and I miss working with the likes of Maxwell or um, Neil. Whether or not what I do has in turn never really done a particular style of comedy that I've produced mm. I always you know the last five years or so of being a producer I was kind of hankering to maybe do things that were a bit different from comedy and stretch things out a bit but um I don't know I, I don't know if what how I approach comedy would have relevance now
0: yeah no it's a very different landscape now isn't it to uh you know the to the the eighties, the eighties and the nineties,
1: nineties and, and the to some extent the eighties. I think the the nineties in a funny sort of way were a golden age.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Is that when you grew up?
0: Um, I'm i I suppose I'm more of a kid of the, I'm a kid of the eighties, right? I suppose would be my would be my my golden years. The nineties were a bit all a bit too dancey and stuff for me, <laughs> you, you know. But uh, I mean, there was a lot to be said for the the, the comedy that was coming out of out of Britain in the in the 90s. You know, obviously the comic strip guys, you know, what Rick and Aid were doing. You know, they, like Alexei Sale, just the incredible talent. Like, the, you know, Ben Elton. It probably you know, came to
1: and... fruition towards the end of the 80s, I think.
0: Hmm. That's uh, it. It all kind of blurs, doesn't it, as you get older?
1: <laughs> oh, it does. Blurs, it's it does. Like a blob. <laughs> but then, you know, you look at, you look at, you know, Derry Girls, or you look at... Yeah. Yeah, or, uh, would I lie to you? Which I think is a superb. Oh, definitely. So it's so funny, and there isn't much that I look forward to in terms of comedy, though, to watch.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you look at Channel Four now, and it's a it's a totally different beast, isn't it? Now to what you would have known back in the day. I mean, it's all like a true life it, series. Yeah,
1: it it lacks a certain amount of identity. It's sometimes. Mm. Like slightly upmarket, Channel Five. Um, what a true crime! <laughs> yeah, and I, well, I don't know what Channel Four is anymore, and I don't mean that in a kind of a horrible old. No, topic. I know what you mean. I I I,
0: mean, I totally agree. I totally agree. See an
1: identity to it? And you know, there was a time when I I don't know would I I don't know whether I'd have done it, Paula. But you know, the traitors should have been on Channel Four. Mm. Maybe not in my time, but there was a time when somebody would have commissioned the the traders for Channel 4. And I also think that the way that the landscape has changed with these massive, massive companies doing the vast majority of the output means that they have concentrated their fire for broadcast television as opposed to streaming in a particularly fine laser focus. And I think Channel 4 has fallen outside that. And I remember having a conversation about 10 years ago with a Channel 5 commissioning editor who I liked and got on very well with. Uh And he said, yeah, well, you know, this is what we do. And it's big trucks and big trucks. That was was (laughs) big big trucks. And he moved to Channel 4. And I had the same conversation with him a couple of years later. And he didn't say big trucks, but I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of like big trucks. You know, it was sort of like there was this obsession with certain areas that they wanted to do. And we got quite a long way down the road with one particular idea with Channel 4, but then the commissioning editor left, and then it was not invented here syndrome. But there was this sense that, whereas when I was there, commissioning editors were, there were a dozen of us. Yeah. And you went in and you had your meeting and you got a yes or a no. And then if a commissioning editor said, this is going to work, it was nine times out of 10 going to get made. Mm. Because they would simply go in and say, this is what I want to do. And grade or whoever would say, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. That's why you're here. Yeah. You're in in that job
0: for a reason. Do you know what I mean? Obviously they trust. But I think,
1: but the volume of work that is now being, you know, people are now content producers,
0: yeah, yeah, content
1: providers, and there's YouTube
0: YouTube thing is crazy.
1: But there is so much content, Paul. You know, there's, and that's grand, I I don't have a problem with that, but yeah, the fact is that that much content needs that many more editors and assistant editors, and and suddenly. You know, there's only one real gatekeeper, but they're a long way away from where most people come in with their stuff. And I think that there's something lost about that thing of little companies having one idea. Mm. Years ago, the education department, when I was Channel Four, the education department said to me, "We've got these guys, and they want to do this show about archaeology, and it's there, and we think it's great, but you know." It's not entertain- you know we think it's kind of like entertainment, and we'd like you to look at it right, said, this is brilliant, you should do this, and then they said, Oh, well, could you give us some money? And I said, No, I can't because I'm <laughs> <laughs> spending all my money on people being sweary on television, and uh they said, You know, here we go, let's do this thing, and they did it, and, oh, and they only said, Who do you think should present it and I had seen Tony Robinson doing. Oh my god,
0: Time Team! (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. But they were these guys who came in who were a bit weird, and guys who had who were polytechnic lecturers or something. Yeah, yeah. And they had this idea, and they made it work, and they made it. You know, and I saw them after the first series, and they said, "Oh, it's a shame you weren't involved." And I said, "No, no, no, you're bloody lucky I wasn't involved because I I would have tried to make you give prizes or something," you know. Oh, giving the car away! Why are they giving the car away? They the car away? <laughs> and uh, they, they, you know, they had a great show, and that show wouldn't have come out of anywhere else. And I read a thing that Brian Cox, the astronomer, not the actor, said yeah. <laughs> that, that you know he grew up in a time when there were four TV channels, and there was always a chance that you were going to start watching something you didn't think you were going to like. Yes be absorbed by it and I think that's gone and I don't mean that in a kind of an old fogey way joy of television way you know the joy of television is turning on something and going what's that all oh, right you know I sometimes come in the evening my mum is watching Monty Dawn on Japanese <laughs> I had no idea that until two weeks ago that I had any interest in Japanese gardens whatsoever. <laughs> I came with your show and I sat down and I was absolutely riveted. Well, no, um, but you look at stuff like Naked Attraction and you're like, what is going
0: on in the world? Do you know yeah. I mean? It's just like...
1: It's become that thing, you know, I mean, the first series of Big Brother, everybody talked about it as a social experiment. But the second t- t- series, it was about who was sleeping with who. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing about it that, that, that I found even worse, because if they want to make a show about that, good, fine, go ahead. But the thing that really bothered me was that by the second series, it had stopped being edited. It was they were relying on the tabloids oh, man. to tell the story for them. Yeah. In a series of exposes about, oh, Arl sleeps it's with somebody gone. next yeah. week. You know, who is it going to be? And the shows themselves were kind of, they didn't have any real sense of ebb and flow or climax, yeah. buildup, or conflict. It would shout at each other occasionally, but it was people shouting at each other, you know, and, but that would be, you know, Doug and Alice have this huge blazing row, and you'd see it, and it was just like two drunk people shouting at each other. <laughs> but like the I, celebrity yeah. ones, people are, still, people are still talking. What, it, what I you like know. about, what, you see, what I think is great about the traders, is that they have actually gone back to this idea that people themselves are quite interesting. Mm. And that if you dial back the emotional outbursts and, you know, apply the kind of rhythms of drama to it, which they've done very well, you have a more interesting show. I mean, how many Maiden Chelsea's or Love Island's are there being where, you know, you see people who some of whose lives are actually destroyed and to what end you know there's no real sense that they're an interesting character or that they have some set of achievements that or some set of potentials that you know and then you go back to strictly come dancing and it's brilliant television you know and it's brilliant television because They've really, really crafted and sculpted those stories and they've chosen people. And when somebody isn't that interesting, they find a way of making them interesting. Mm. And, you know, that's a show that could not have been made 30 years ago because it's just too bloody expensive. You know, you wouldn't have the production value that you have in that show. You know, if we'd been doing that when I was at Channel 4, we'd have been talking about a million a show or something. Oh, easily. Yeah, yeah. That no, we just didn't have the money to do that. Not that we ever would, because it would, would have been, we'd have looked at Strictly Come Dance and said, no, it's a BBC One show, it's not for us.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, even like the Gogglebox, you know, it must be great to see
1: to, firsthand people's reactions. To yes. Something. Yeah, that's that's somebody had a good idea.
0: <laughs> that was the thing. People <laughs> were like, oh my God, TV. how is this going to work?
1: How did that get on TV? Somebody had a good idea. Th- there is a sense that, what you're seeing is, oh, another one of those where they do that. And, you know, first dates are, they're fine. They're absolutely fine. But I don't really particularly care about them. Mm. Um, And maybe that's just that as you get older, your filter, you know, becomes clogged up and you can't take this stuff in anymore. You know, you'd have Vic and Bob coming out, and you'd have commissioning the editor saying, "Yes, well, my daughter thinks they're very funny." <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not really what a commissioning yeah, editor. Yeah, like is.
0: Matt Lucas as well. Do you know what I mean? Him doing. Yeah.
1: But when when Matt Lucas was Bernard, Sir Bernard.
0: Oh, Bernard Chumley, yeah.
1: And it was, it was absolutely scabrous. <laughs> <laughs> or when he was being the you know in the in um little Britain um and I didn't I was never somebody who thought Paula was that funny, but I thought the disabled guy in the wheelchair oh yeah
0: yeah that was
1: just brilliant you know absolutely hilarious and you know that was a show that you know that would cause immense problems now I think
0: I don't know I think are they're working on a new series aren't they but I mean I know Matt and David are working on a new project together, but I mean, I don't know how it's going to, you know, how it's going to work in relation he's, to how little Britain works.
1: Yeah. I, I thought little Britain was brilliant, but there he's a very hard performer to fit into things. Mm. You know, he's done other series where he's been Matt playing a character. and yeah. It's funny, was, funny. He's in the new Wonka movie. So <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, but that's kind of very lucrative and great and all that. But it's like Mark Williams being in 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> probably what was, I mean, I think Mark Williams is one of the, the great co- comedy character actors. Yeah,
0: yeah, very, very unsung, unsung hero.
1: And, uh, you know, somebody who was in The Fast Show and Charlie and Paul wrote a pilot for Channel 4 called Dead at 30. Mm hmm. And they had, it was about four people who lived in a flat together, a flat share. And they were all reasonably successful and they spent their time doing fairly kind of people who had a bit of money, but not, you know, not everything. And and it's, you know, that doesn't sound at all like friends, um, and uh, we did the pilot, and Mark was in it, and he was brilliant. And the rest of the pilot wasn't that good. There was another actor in it called Jesse something, who was one of those guys who you just knew was going to be really, really big, and he never was. And it wasn't that funny, and we didn't do it, and didn't go on to do it as a series. But I remember Mark seeing Mark for the first time in that and thinking, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just comedy gold. And then they used him in the fast show. So they obviously had him in their mind for quite a long time.
0: Father Brown as well. Yeah. Father yeah. Father I, I, Brown.
1: <laughs> but yeah, but you know, I mean, he should be in something better than Father oh, Brown. Oh, he's,
0: incre- he's incredible. You you know, as soon as you see him in t- his name is on something, you know it's going to be special.
1: Look, he should be Morse's sidekick or. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs>
1: Not Lauren. We'll
0: start a campaign to get Mark Williams some better jobs.
1: Yeah, it it just needs to be in something. It could be the, could be it... the new new Bond, maybe. Uh, no, <laughs> not new bond, joking, I but I'd rather see him as Johnny English than Rowan Atkinson. To be yes. honest, you know.
0: a bit about music now have there been any any sort of major music loves in your life be it a band or an artist
1: yeah probably um when i was a kid we were all into horse lips Mm. because there was no rock music in ireland in dublin where there was a tiny 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 little bit of rock music and horse lips did this kind of quite clever thing of playing dance halls. Mm. And dance halls in Ireland were dominated by show bands who were guys who were either dressed like Butland's red coats <laughs> and, and did cover versions of big hits from the UK or America, or they were eventually starting to turn into bands who did more up-to-date cover versions. There was a band called The Memories who, you know, got the front page of the local music magazine before it was hot, before Hot Press. Right, right. By doing a no perfect rendition of Bohemian Rhapsody. And this was the talk of... So there weren't any bands doing original music outside of a small number of bands in Dublin. Mm. And Horslips played dance halls. So when I was about 14 or 15, we'd all got the first Horse Lips album, which had the greatest sleeve of all time. Yeah. And they would play in Borderland, just over the border in Donegal. And they would play in other Donegal venues. So myself and a couple of friends used to crack off to these gigs in Ballyliffin and Bondorin and mm-hmm. Bunkrat. And uh, our parents would take it in turns to pick us up. at three. <laughs> <laughs> And um, we th- so they were they were a huge musical love at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that I, that's kind of, I suppose, an unusual one for
0: mm-hmm.
1: anybody outside my generation in Ireland. And they were you listen to some of it now and think that's quite good. And you listen to some of it now and think, oh, dear, well, that's awful. Um and uh so and then I suppose I did the thing of being into being into Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. uh, where you think that it would be great to live in New Jersey and <laughs> <laughs> not near Bunkrana. Uh, <laughs> Bunkrana was the sort of the, you know, you boardwalk. <laughs> <laughs> <The> boardwalk. <laughs> I think one of the things that's interesting about being a kid in Ireland, growing up and listening to music is that you're confronted with a set of cultural references. Mm. You don't actually have any real reference point for, you know, there are no drive in movies, there are no highways, bars are a very different thing. And full of old fellas in cloth caps drinking pints of Guinness. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably, in retrospect, strange thing to be looking back in.
0: Yeah, I suppose, like, growing up in the UK, do you know what I mean? We were bombarded with American culture from, from birth, basically. We
1: buy the New Music Express and look at those back pages where there would be gigs at the... Leicester de Montfort Hall.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, the Leicester de Montfort Hall.
0: <laughs> the glamour.
1: Very exciting, you know that that thing of seeing people go. People get all kind of guilt trippy about being too metropolitan now. Mm. When I was a kid. London was a mecca. Oh yeah, it was where everything you'd heard about and read about and listened to had happened mm, mm. for real and you know I remember going to London for the first time you know when I, when I moved to London this was supposed to be rock and roll heaven but it wasn't no, <laughs> and know. Lemmy was at the bar pissed <laughs> and, <laughs> and that kind of felt vaguely authentic so I don't know uh, I, I think you had that thing of everything was you know when I when I went to Queen's it I saw a number of bands at like The Clash there. Yeah. Always felt the next day as if the circus had left town, but something magical had been in town and you weren't going to run into them in the street. And that was kind of sad that this thing had been taken away from you again. I remember going to see Van Morrison in 77 or 78. And it was all people talked about for yeah. weeks and the first night he played for half an hour and walked off in a huff. <laughs> second night, which was the night that I was there, he did like two and a half hours, and he was brilliant. And you know that was that was actually a divider between you and your mates that you'd been on the good night. <laughs> so you know, and I have to say, I don't find I still listen to a lot of music. Mm. But I don't get the thrill that I got from I certainly don't get that thrill from live music. I yeah, yeah, that.
0: yeah. Like the early those early days.
1: No, it just feels like too too much of an effort and uh, frankly too expensive. I mean Oh
0: God, I know. A few
1: years ago, Stevie Dan played at the three arena. A friend of mine couldn't go and he gave me his ticket. And it was like one of those show bands, you know, they were very good, but yeah, were kind of cover versions of. Uh, and I looked at the ticket, and it was yeah. 110 euros. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. W- it makes no w- sense w- at all. What went wrong that you had, you know, it really wasn't 110 euros worth of entertainment for the evening. So that would be the thing that, anyway, that horseps were really the thing when I was a kid. And especially during the lockdown, there was a sense of there being voices. It was like, you know, there were voices out there. And Derry is, like I haven't lived until I moved back in 2019 or 2020, whenever it was. I hadn't lived there for 35 years.
0: Mm.
1: I don't know anybody, you know. I don't have a whole lot of, all my friends moved away. Yeah. And when the lockdown happened the idea that there were other people elsewhere it was kind of like after the bomb had dropped and you were hearing these little survivor radio stations mm. and that was quite a nice feeling there was something quite comforting and cozy about that but i listen to music a lot when i'm when i'm out walking as well
0: mm. yeah i seem to only time i seem to be in derry is for gigs you know i'd come up for gigs and things if uh if bands I'm following are playing in Derry, it's a lovely, it's a lovely city. It's very hilly.
1: <laughs> like Rome in that respect.
0: It's lovely. It's,
1: Built like down hills. it's lovely. Somebody once said to me that, uh, oh, I'll name drop it. It was Billy Connolly once said <laughs>
0: you when he, when that, he heard,
1: When he heard I was from Derry, he said he loved Derry uh, because he said, it's like a, when the sun shines, it's like a little Italian town. I thought that's very sweet. It's a very nice thing to say. Um, And he's right. You know, there are sections of it. And it is better now than when I was growing up. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Um, You know, it really is. Um, And it hasn't quite recovered from the lockdown, I don't think. To the same extent, there are bits of it that are a bit shabby. Mm. Um, You know, it's a lot better than there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more places to shop. Than when I was a kid, um, you know, I used to come back from London at Christmas, and it would be cold and dark, and it would sort of feel like Eastern Europe or something, <laughs> because it felt so bit down. Um, and it doesn't feel like that now. And the great thing about dairy people is that you know the Millennium Forum, which I'm sure you've been to, oh is
0: yeah, lovely, very good
1: yeah. example of it. When they decide to do something. And there's a couple of leaders involved who can really do it. The little theatre as well down behind the walls is another example of at the Playhouse. And when they get into it, they do it, you know, and mm. they do it. Um, there used to be a gallery in Derry called the Orchard Gallery. You know where the Millennium is? Yeah. Right. You know that street that goes down? But there's there's a, an old Victorian looking hall called St. Colm's Hall, next door by. And then down the side of that, there's a hilly street. You go down towards the river. And the basement of that hall used to be called the Orchard Gallery. It was run by a guy called Declan McGonagall, who became the director of the ICA for a while. Right. In the 1980s, and, or 90s, maybe. And uh, then he I think he was running the college in Dublin that uh, Paul Woodhouse went to. That so, listen to his podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, Declan, when when the gallery was between exhibitions, he would put on bands, and the Undertones played there, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he would run exhibitions that were quite exhibition circuity. But then he would have an exhibition of Paul Sample or Robert Crumb or stuff like oh, that. And it became a place that kids dropped in and drank coffee and sat and chatted and hung out. Now it's not there anymore, which is a great shame. But Mm. that idea of somewhere where, you know, where people coalesced to do something other than chew gum and play pool, whatever, you know. So, and Declan was that kind of, still is, that kind of locus of energy and enthusiasm and of focus to be able to do something and try to find ways of of creating an energy mm. and i think that when dairy people want to do things they're quite good at that
0: yeah you no, I still think it's a very creative city very
1: creative mm-hmm. yeah i think so you're up you're up here from time to time
0: yeah no i love like even Belfast, like I was saying before, you know, seeing Belfast in the '90s to what it is now, it's a lovely place. Absolutely love wandering around Belfast now. It's just you know, I think it's just it's so welcoming, and the people are lovely, and everyone's relaxed.
1: You know, the Titanic Quarter, mm. the Quarter, and somebody had the inspired idea of calling. This is quarters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it stops being down around You know, angel quarter. You know, and the... It was a quarter, and yeah. that's good. I think that's great. Um, and they've also, you know, they they've kind of piggybacked off the Titanic thing and the fact that it became a media hub. You know, so they've done very well in in that. I'm up there from time to time because I have friends there but um it's no Belfast is pretty good that way
0: it was so much.
1: tremendous thank you. fun um, oh no
0: thank you so much for chatting with me today Seamus it's been an absolute pleasure